Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Pai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast. It's a podcast that's looking at the structures and forms of immersive storytelling and the future of spatial computing. You can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Voices VR. So continuing on my series of Venice Immersive 2022, today's episode is with Craig Quintero on a piece called All That Remains. So this is a 360 video that was really quite provocative. You don't quite know what to expect, and it's difficult to know exactly what a piece like this means. And actually in talking to the creator, Craig Quintero, he his whole goal was to try to recreate this one-on-one encounter that he's been doing in the context of Taiwanese immersive theater scene. And in that sense, he's trying to pervert your expectations and constantly kind of pull out the rug from underneath you and working with the actors to give them very specific directions for how they're trying to cultivate this confluence of different emotions and feelings. And so it's a really quite provocative piece. And it was one of my favorites and uh, actually just covering a lot of the scene of what was happening there with the 360 video within Taiwan and just how that is being supported by their culture. I'll have a few other interviews kind of digging into that. But this conversation with Craig, I think is really interesting just to hear his process of working with these actors and to construct these moments that are kind of recreating this one-on-one type of encounter within the context of 360 video. So that's what we're covering on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Craig happened on Friday, September 2nd, 2022 at the Venice Immersive in Venice, Italy. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. So my name is Craig Quintero. I'm the artistic director of Riverbed Theater. We're a Taipei-based theater company, and we've been together for 24 years. And this is our first virtual reality project, All That Remains. For this piece, it's slightly different, and so we've been doing these immersive performances for an audience of one for the past 11 years. And so with those, we'd have sometimes up to 10 performers or 12 performers performing for one audience member at a time. Some of these were in museums, some of these were in hotels, in alleys. And so it's really these intimate encounters, like these moments of I'm not as an actor standing on a stage performing into the darkness to the abstract audience. You're performing for the person directly in front of you. And so a lot of it was like sort of our theater company had already been together for about 11 years when we started or 12 years when we started doing this. And like our shows had grown in scale and bigger and bigger. And so the distance between us and our audience also got greater. And so it was really this project about returning to this fundamental, like how do we connect? Like in this age of separation and the living theater, this New York-based company had said, we only look each other in the eyes when there's an emergency. That quote has resonated and stuck with me for a long time. And it's thinking about right now, like that we can't avert our eyes, that we do need to look and we do need to see, we do need to connect. And so we were doing this performances for an audience of one. We did about 10 different shows. And obviously sort of economically, it's difficult to sustain because if you perform 60 times, only 60 people get to see it, right? And so for the performers, it's an amazing encounter. For the audience, it's an amazing encounter, but not financially sustainable. And so we started thinking about making the shift to virtual reality. And so this is the first experiment with that. Okay, yeah, I can definitely tell that there's a deep tradition of theater practices. And yeah, we'll, we'll get into the experience. I'd love to unpack it more. But before we do that, I'd love to get a bit more context as to your background and your journey into VR. Okay. Yeah, so I'm an American. I first went to Taiwan in 1992 to study Chinese opera as a rotary scholar and that one year studying Chinese opera, I met a bunch of folks in the experimental theater community. And it's a really vibrant community. And so one year led to two years, which led to the past 30 years of my life doing work and research in Taiwan. And so with our theater company, a lot of it's image-based theater. And so very little language. The whole idea is like this idea we talked before about our work and described it in terms of like moving pictures or living sculptures. And so it was cinematic well being theater, right? And so now we're sort of doing cinema or VR that's kind of theatrical. And so I think we've been shifting back and forth between, you know, film, theater, fine art, installations, you know, for the past 24 years as a company. And for us then this journey to VR was really about, you know, we've embraced, you know, like I mentioned, like sculpture, installations, all these things. And it's like, well, you know, VR with this medium, what does it provide, right? And so in a way, like with the one-to-one performance, we could deal with like, you know, physical contact. We could deal with smell and taste and touch and all of these elements. And so we lose that as we're transitioning to VR. 
But I think that we gain something that's like the level of closeness that, I mean, in our piece, like all that remains, the actors seem almost maybe as present or more present or a different type of presence than what we encounter in everyday life. Because you're like with the Oculus on your head, I mean, they're, they're so close. And when they're looking, you feel, I mean, you feel like they're there. And there's like a moment where the performer holds up a key and the audience can, and a lot of people reach up to take it. And they were like people that have seen a lot of VR, so they, they know that this isn't that type of encounter, but still something is happening, right? And so for us, it's like it's exploration. So whether it's theater or VR, I think it's really less important about the medium itself, but how do we create these encounters? How do we have something happen, right? And so it's less about telling a story or it's less about this is our moral, this is this idea, take away these thoughts, but creating this reflective surface where in through seeing the work, the audience can see themselves. Yeah, and you'd mentioned that you're also teaching at Iowa, and so it sounds like you know you originally went to Taiwan to study Chinese opera, but so there's a scholarly element. So what, what are you teaching in Iowa, and how does that connect to what you're doing in the theater practice? Yeah, so I teach at Grinnell College in Iowa, and so I teach primarily acting and directing. Within the practice, I've also incorporated a lot of devised work. And so one assignment for my advanced performance class is students also do a performance for an audience of one. And so it's encouraging them also to rethink, like, well, what is theater? What is performance? That you look at the visual arts and the experimentation that have happened over the last hundred years. I mean, like, you know, a hundred years ago, people were painting landscapes and fruits, right? Like still lifes. And you look at the explosion in you know, experimental and contemporary art. And in theater, there's still the role of text, the role of character, the role of plot, the same sort of Greek dramatic structure that we've been following for you know, 2,000 years, we're still engaged with, right? And so I'm really encouraging the students in the classroom to like rethink what is the potential of performance. And I think that for you know this experiment, for us, it's like taking performance and putting it in VR, right? And having this other medium for this encounter. So you said you've been doing one-on-one theater productions for... 11 years and so that yeah, I guess that takes us back to like 2011 I, I remember Sleep No More opening in New York City in 2011 which I saw it in October 2011 which is when Occupy Wall Street was happening and so it had opened earlier in that spring but there's a lot of people in immersive theater space that are moving around and then you would have like a one-on-one encounter that they had built into that as a piece and then then she fell by third rail projects had a lot of the one-on-one encounters that was really designed for 15 people and i don't know 10 or 12 actors that were really orchestrated to create an entire experience to do one-on-one interactions but have each of the audience members go through a different path through the spatial context so that they could each maybe go through the similar scenes, but in a different order so that they could each have each of these different one-on-one interactions. And so with the pure one-on-one though, you're really constrained to just doing something for that one person. So had you been aware of these other ones or have you seen some of these other pieces that have been experimenting with the immersive theater scene and one-on-one interactions? Yeah, so the first time I experienced this, I did my undergraduate work at Tufts University outside of Boston, like in Medford. And there was an artist there named Marilyn Arsom. And so when I was an undergraduate many moons ago, I saw some of her work at Mobius. And then she came and talked to my class about a performance she did for an audience of one called Red in Woods. And it was this beautiful piece where they have this red yarn leading into the woods and you follow the yarn and you're sort of discovering this. And so it's, I think, maybe five or six performers and this almost fairy tale journey into the, the forest. And she staged it on the first day of the year that it was snowing and she staged it right around sunset. And so there's like white on the ground and the sunset casting like this reddish glow. And so this magical world. And so that story that she told me as an undergraduate stuck with me. Then, you know, in 2011, as our company was, as mentioned, was expanding and getting bigger and sort of really feeling like we're losing this connection with the audience, like we're performing into darkness. And as you're an actor and you're performing into darkness, I mean, then it becomes like my technical skills and my emoting and my projecting or it becomes internal, but you're lacking, you're performing into the void. And it seemed that we were, we were losing something. And so it became important to try to go back and at that moment, I wasn't conscious, I'm going to do something like Marilyn. But I mean, that seed was planted, right? And so I think that in terms of talking to students, you know, this idea of like feed your head, like the more creative stuff you put in your head, the more things can like grow, right? 
And so, you know, hopefully like in the classes I'm teaching as well, they also do, you know, Stanislavski-based, method-based, like sort of I'm going to do my character analysis and what's my motivation. But also, I mean, there's an infinite number of possibilities. And so I think that with immersive theater or with VR, I mean, it's so exciting because, I mean, we're discovering the field or rewriting the field like every day. And so you look at here, like in Venice, you know, there's like 40 projects and everyone has like a slightly different take on it. And I think that's immensely exciting. If you look at the average theater scene, like in you know, a city, like how many are like doing play plays, like the way that it's been done since you know, theater started. And so I think this idea of like rewriting the book is really sort of exciting. I did see Sleep No More, but like the first time about four or five years ago. So I, I had heard about maybe six or seven years ago, and I didn't eventually. And But I mean, beautiful. And like those moments of just sort of like the groups converging. And so the collective audience seeing something. And then those moments of like, I've never had the one-on-one performance, but I've heard about them. But just sort of like, yeah, the, the range of that encounter. Something that's really about the one-on-one performances or performances for an audience of one that we've been doing. We've only let one audience member see it at a time. Because if you have even two people, like right now I'm looking at you directly in the eyes, and if there's a second person, then I'd also connect with them. And then I'd come back to you. And then I'd look away from you and look at them. And there we're sort of breaking this connection with you. And so when we'd have sometimes 10 performers, all 10 would be (laughs) looking at you. And so in this moment, it's kind of overwhelming. Because in life, we look away. And in these projects, we don't. And so even in the VR project, the first scene where the two men pass the camera and then they turn and they're constantly, so even as you're watching the woman enter, these two men are also looking, I mean, you're still, you're, you're the center, right? You're in it. Have you had a chance to see Then She Fell? I did not, yeah. Okay, so that was for me, I, I had one brief one-on-one encounter from Sleep No More, but Then She Fell felt like it was... or so was scenes that were one-on-one encounters, but a series of them, like with lots of different types of actors and moments. And there were some group scenes because I don't think they had the 15 actors for the 15 audience. But for me, there was something about the intimacy and the types of interactions that I had. Like, I just remember being in a room with like filing cabinets in the back and like the person on the other side doing some acrobatic stuff and just real intense moments that they're reacting to you. And actually some of the third world projects that did that end up working on Wolves in the Walls. So there's a certain amount of the types of one-on-one interactions that Fable Studio put into Lucy as the AI character that was informed by the embodied interactions and the wisdom that comes from immersive theater actors that are dealing with a range of different types of reactions that they have for keeping people engaged and how to use body language as a communication tool. And so it feels like this experience of All That Remains is kind of the first experience that started to replicate some of those feelings that I had from that Then She Fell one-on-one encounters with that type of intimacy. So I feel like that was part of the part of the thing that really stood out for me for why it was so profound, because I haven't seen a lot of other people that have really tried to create that energy of that encounter. And so because you've been doing this with theater, what were some of the lessons that you were trying to bring into either directing the actors or if the actors had already had a lot of experience there or how you're able to really... Um, cultivate that vibe and that feeling of having an encounter with someone who's not really there? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I I think that you mentioned that so when we're doing it for a live audience member, and so as soon as the door opens and you see this person and they see you and your eyes connect, as a performer, we can tell, I mean, are are they really excited? And you need like, okay, calm down. It's okay. Or are they looking on the floor and you're like, okay, now it's okay to look up. And how do you sort of adjust to that audience member? And so even though the piece is really tightly choreographed and like everything's sort of set, in those initial moments, there's this moment of adjustment of helping the audience prepare to enter the work. And that's obviously something that we don't have in VR, right? Because her her blocking is recorded, right? It is that iteration. And so we don't have the ability to like, it's, it's okay, like look, calm down, or to like look up, look, I'm here, it's okay to see me. And so in terms of the blocking, we're really trying to be specific about helping the audience know where to look. And so like people in a lot of VR experiences, you see them constantly like looking around, like, well, should I look over my shoulder, should I look here? And really helping the audience know when to turn, where to turn, where to focus. And so for example, in the first scene, like where the, the two people pass and they pass the camera, and so they're looking at you, 
but then we use sound to sort of indicate that another character is entering. And then if you look back at the other two people, they're either looking at you or looking at her. And so there's never like a question mark of like, oh, well, where, where's the focus? For the second scene, constructing sort of like, we had the platform that was sort of able to rotate. Again, we're sort of creating a panning shot, which is something that initially for that scene, we were trying to, initially it was like, well, the lights will go on and then we use lighting to have the audience will look here and then look here and look here. But I mean, the lighting is so bright, you could see the whole room in the first second, right? And so it was like, well, you know, it, it didn't work, right? Because the audience would look and they'd be ahead of the performance. And so we constructed this sort of like this shifting image to create a panning effect in VR, which I hadn't seen before. And I was like, well, will it work? <laughs> and so again, it's like, well, how does the audience know where to look? How do we control the pace of what they're seeing? And so it's really creating, like in Robert Wilson's early, the American director's early work about like, you know, how do you like slowing down the pace of the movements? So the audience's like heartbeat can slow down. Our minds are like racing. There's so much information. I'm coming from a meeting. Or I just ran over here to see this piece and I'm going to see the next video in like 10 minutes. So how do we like slow things down so we can see them and experience them. And so a lot of it was trying to figure out, well, how do we help the audience have that encounter and let it, let something happen? And then last thing you sort of initially were talking about the performers and I sort of jumped a little bit from there. But like with the actors, it was a lot about, so if you look the whole time directly in the audience's eye, it becomes uncomfortable. And in a way that's like, you know, if someone's, you're talking to someone, they just keep staring you in the eye, you're like, okay. And, and so, I mean, you look away. And so there's moments where, you know, as she's entering, she's not looking at you directly, her eyes are averted. So you can see her enter. So you can see the full her. And then when she raises her eyes and looks at you, then you connect with her. And then she looks down when her hands raise. And so there's a really tight choreography of when you're seeing her eyes or you're seeing into her eyes and when you can see the fullness of her person. And so it's really tight choreography because there are two different shots, right? There's two different compositions. And so with the actors, a lot of it was about, you know, like, okay, slowly down. And then on a 10 count as your hand comes up and now turn back to the audience. So they can see here first, they can read the text. And now after they've read the text, you can look at them. Did you read that? And in your eyes, you're asking them this question. Oh, and then you look down and like, oh, now I have another hand. Did you see that? And so it's all really tightly about helping the audience see the work and then like for the final image with the actress it's like I gave her like probably the most difficult director's note okay so in your final images you want to have you know like the depth of like loss that this world that you've had before is leaving but also like the glow of infinite possibility and just like this glimmer of hope and the sense of memory. And so it's like these two sort of maybe polar opposite things like simultaneously happening. Because so do you mean this is the direction you gave? It's like, so think about these images and try to have the contrast in your mind and then use that as your performance. And so in your eyes have like immense loss and like the glimmer of possibility. And so I think as actors, oftentimes you're like, okay, well this scene you're angry or this scene you're sad or this scene you're, and you have like these, one thing is happening. But I mean, in our lives, always there's multiple things happening. That we're in love with someone, but we also, there's this thing and we have question marks and we have, I mean, there's, there's all these things happening. And so for a performer, in her eyes, when she like looks down and then she looks back up at the camera, I don't want there to be one answer. I want there to be infinite answers. And hopefully each audience member, as she looks up and she sees them in the eyes, that each of them will have a different takeaway. Yeah, I guess one of the qualities of the experience that I get from watching All That Remains is that there's this liminal quality or it kind of transcends my expectations because it's something that goes beyond anything else that I've really experienced before. So you're kind of in this space of awe and wonder and confusion, but liminality, these kind of in-between spaces, but also not knowing quite what to expect or, or even quite what it means so it's a little bit like a spatial poem in some sense where you're giving directions and you're very specific to what the actors are doing but it's been translated into these embodied interactions that then become less clear as to what's happening and so at the end of it you're creating this vibe and experience and so I'm, I'm wondering just to hear a little bit more about your process of like how you think about those are these like liminal spaces or like are these the abstractions of of not knowing and then 
leaving it open enough for the audience to project onto it and make their own meaning. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about what you're doing with these pieces like this. Yeah, I'd say I like to use this idea of like, so the audience enters and they're standing on a carpet. And then our role as a director is to like yank the carpet out from under them. And so they're sort of stumblers like, oh shit, like what, what, what was that? And then they sort of like get their footing back again. And before they completely get it back, you yank it again. And so they stumble again. And then you yank and they stumble and you yank and they stumble. And so by the end, they're sort of floating in the air, right? And so, and I think that yanking is sort of removing our normal logical process, our normal way of, well, this A means A, or this has a meaning, or wanting it to have a concrete meaning, right? And I think once we can let go of that interpretation of like, well, what does it mean and just experience the encounter, then something different can happen. Because I think our, our minds are structured in a way that we want things to mean something. We want to be able to explain why the neighbor did the horrible thing when you hear the reporters like, yeah, well, you know, it's, I think it was when he was a kid, this happened. So we, we want to be able to like put it in a box that we know and understand. And I think as an artist, how can we help remove the box? How can we help just sort of, it's happening. Right. And so I think that when we talk about theater and like we talk about like realism and it's like, OK, well, this is a realistic play. And so, you know, and, and what we mean is that they're sort of imitating reality. But over the course of a realistic play, like in two hours, someone will get married, they'll fall in love, they have a kid, they, someone get cancer. And, they, you know, so in two hours, a whole life story is resolved. That's not reality. Right. And so hopefully, like like with the text on the hands, like this is not a performance. Like everything that you're watching is happening in real time. They're not acting, they're doing these actions. And so I think it's removing story, it's removing the need to have it have a single meaning, it's removing the idea of playing character. It's just things are happening, like life, right? And so I think that if we try to get life, like, I mean, life doesn't have a story. We sort of give it a story, we get like, and then I met the love of my life and blah, 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 blah. But I mean, how, why? or the kid that gets cancer, or like a tsunami, or a car accident, or, I mean, it's all, these things are happening. And so I think in our work, it's really trying to create a space where the audience can hopefully let go of <laughs> sort of the way that we're sort of structured, or we, we structured ourselves to encounter the world, and experience something, or experience it differently. So in that 12 minutes, something else can happen. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I was able to experience that within your piece. So, you know, that letting go of what to expect or what's going to happen and being in this kind of like altered state of consciousness in some way, because it's like, I don't know where this, what's happening. What, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. You know, where, where is this going? What's happening? <laughs> All these questions that like trying to, you know, trying to fit the pattern, but it is in some ways a deconstruction of traditional theater and storytelling and really focusing on those embodied interactions and theatrical performance. And, you know, as you were describing it, I was, you know, thinking about is your background and studying this stuff as an academic and teaching it that there's the concepts of genre and how things fit into genre and genre is all about creating a set of expectations. And so I'm wondering if you, if you identify with any genre or if you're trying to transcend even the genres. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's a great, another, all your questions are great. Um, like, I don't identify with a genre. I mean, I, I think that, you know, people that have been really influential, like I would say are like Marilyn Arsom, the performance artist in Boston, who I saw, like the first time I saw performance art was this work that she did. And where it's like these series of images. And I remember I was supposed to write a review of it. And I was like, but there's no plot. There's no, all the things that I was taught to look for in this piece weren't there. And I remember going up to her afterwards, I was like, you know, like I, I'm, you know, I was 18 year old reporter writing my first article. And, you know, like, and tell me, the images were beautiful, like these stunning images, but like, what does it mean? And so we had this back and forth. And then in the end, I mean, it's like, I told her, and we did this, like, well, what does it mean? I don't know, what does it mean? Blah, blah, blah. You, you know. And then she was, and then in the end, I, was, I told a story about um, going to the hospital. And seeing my grandfather had a stroke and like seeing him there. And so obviously her performance wasn't about my grandfather and him having a stroke and sort of this situation, but it brought me there, right? And um, so thinking about this performance as vehicle, so it's not a performance about 
Marilyn and what a great actor, what a great setter, her and her character. Like I said before, it's like this mirror in which we see ourselves. And it was at that moment that I really sort of started to think about, yeah, I don't have something great to say, but if I can create a moment or a space where people can have these moments to see yourself, to know thyself, you know, and so I think Marilyn gave that to me when I was 18 years old. And I'd say that the rest of our work has been um, trying to do that. Mm. Wow. Huh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite an introduction into your first article. <laughs> so as you were talking to her, do you mean that you had, through the conversation you had it, or through watching the art you had that? I was a little confused as what you were saying there. I'd say like in watching the art, I sort of had this encounter where you know, these, these, these memories or these experiences. And, you know, at that point, I hadn't really talked about my processing of my grandfather, you know, being in the hospital. I hadn't talked to my friends about it, and I hadn't talked to my parents about it. It's something that's sort of been in me. And then suddenly, through her performance, I was, I was addressing it. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's like, how do we help? I think so much of our life is built around, like, don't stop and think. It's like constant input. And so we don't really have to process our life. We sort of just like, oh, we can talk about the book or the film or the movie or the work or relationship or how was your day? Or what did you eat? How's the way? I mean, like we talk about all this stuff so we don't actually have to sit and process the things which are hard. And so I think that art is, and it isn't like, oh, now you must suffer, <laughs> like dig up all your traumas. But it's like, how do we step back and have moments of reflection? And so sometimes, like, if you're looking at a Rothko painting, like, I went to the Rothko Chapel outside of Houston, and so it was, like, these 12 or 13 beautiful, like, purplish, dark canvases, and you look at them, and you lose yourself. And so I, I think this idea of, like, losing yourself, and it's not so you lose yourself and you sort of, you end up lost, but it's like, so you lose yourself so you can find yourself, right? And I think that those are two things that are sort of, you know, tied together, right? Yeah, so in terms of the work, it was this this way to sort of see myself in a different light. Yeah, as I've, I've seen a lot of different VR pieces and at Venice in 2019, there was a piece by Huang Shang Chen called Bodiless and then followed up by another piece called Samsara where there was a lot of aspects of almost like a dream logic. You're flying through and you're seeing all these symbols and some of them are referencing cultural symbols that are more of the universal archetypes from a specific culture that would understand what they mean. And then you have personal symbols that as I watch it, then I had to like sit down with the creator and be like, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? And you just sort of walk through and, and there's sometimes as a creator, very deliberate use of these personal symbols. And so I feel like that in some ways, the challenge of the medium of VR is that you are starting to speak in more of a symbolic logic or a dream logic that Sometimes people have a fluency of what the symbols mean, or sometimes they just have associative links of what things mean. And so it feels like juxtaposing these different symbols and then kind of letting whatever associative links come up in the audience. And so it feels like in some ways this use and leaning into the dream logic, but having some trajectory for what you're trying to do, but maybe not knowing how it's going to be received because it's in this liminal space of not knowing how those symbols are going to be interpreted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, yeah, definitely. Um and, and I think that in terms of structuring the piece, I don't start off with knowing what's going to happen, right? And so I knew that I wanted to have, like the first thing I knew, I wanted to have the room come together. I knew late in the process that I wanted like there to be that the turntable and sort of to be able to, and then I knew I wanted to build this sort of green screen room. But I didn't know what was going to happen there. And so it's in a way, it's almost like doing like a site-specific performance but the site is our set, then we're responding to the set. So I have these ideas for environments, and then I inhabit them with people, and then they do stuff, <laughs> right? And so like the moment where the performer approaches and then her clothing gets removed, and it's like, okay, and so we play this game with this exercise called, and then? Okay, so she walks forward, and then? She looks at the audience, and initially, like, I wanted to maybe have signs that she held up, and I was like, well, but then where do they come from, and where do they go? And it's like, oh, well, what if it's written on her hand? And then, like, okay, and then if this gets pulled away, then what happens? Like, oh, what about a wound? And so some of these things are, like, images we've explored before, 
And then it's like, if there's a wound, well, what could she remove? And so we removed like a knife, we removed like pills, removed like a note that she gave the audience, we removed, what else? Anyway, there's about like seven or eight different things, you know, it's like, and I guess if it was a big enough wound, we would remove a rabbit, I mean, whatever. But it's like, there's, again, infinite possibilities. But then when we got to like the key, then it's like, oh, huh. And then, okay, well, then, then, then what happens? Right. Oh, well then, okay, that is you can open or close something. And then, and then, and so, and then in the room, there's like all the little other keys there. And so it's, try not to use, like, it's symbolic of something. I mean, it is what it is, but it can sort of lead to the next thing. And so it's like this unfolding. And I think that's for me, because it, I don't have to make it make sense that there's sort of limitless possibilities. And so if it was like, oh, well, she's the mother, and this is a story about her childhood and whatever, then it has to fit within that logical structure. And by removing that, then it's sort of, in the end, you still have to sort of make it make sense just because the threads have to sort of weave together in a way. But I don't ever have to say, well, that doesn't make sense because that's, you know, because, I mean, she's not a character, and, and I don't have to fit within that narrative. And so in a way, it's really liberating to just let things happen and then maybe you know if you ask me if we talk a year from now I'll be like oh now I know what it means or now what I know what it means for me and right now I, I haven't actually sat down and tried to sort of give the piece a meaning when you were talking about these different potential scenarios with what she pulling out of the wound and all these different objects is this something that you're actually shooting on set or is this something that you've done in the writing process and you've decided before you get there that it's going to be the key? It's through rehearsal. And so our performers are amazing. So one, like, you know, like Amber, Ollie, Carl, Chris, uh, Lynn, I mean, they're all just like amazing people. And like, and so in rehearsal, we're like, okay, so now, and then, you know, so I'll ask them and then we'll like, so, oh, well, you pulled to try something else. So maybe even switch actors or then we'll sort of run through 10 times and then maybe a week later, like, well, I don't know if the poem, we've already had the text, the text already on the hand. Do we want more text? Should it be a pill? And if it's pill, where does that lead us? You know, and so it's a lot of his experimentation with the performers, like seeing it in real time. And with that, I mean, I think they're amazing performers. But I think equally important, they're like amazing people. Because when you look at Amber's eyes, like when she approaches you or in that final scene, I mean, she's like opening her heart, right? And so when her eyes get like a little wet, like when she's like in the first scene, I mean, she's not playing a role. Is Amber like psychophysically, I mean, her, she's crying. Or she's not to cry. I don't want her to cry because then we'll feel bad for her. But something is happening where her eyes internally enough that they get wet. And so as a performer, because it's not hiding behind a character, it's Amber and Ollie and Carl and Chris and Lynn. It's these people doing these actions. And so I think as a performers, there's an immense generosity of spirit. And I think that's sort of a core thing. And that sort of ties into the rehearsal process because, I mean, they're helping generate the script, you know, with me, right? So there's a bunch of question marks and we're filling in the blanks together. And so... You're doing these rehearsals. Are you shooting individual scenes or do you get the full arc of the whole thing and then shoot it in 360 video? So we, in the rehearsal process, we went through, this was all without cameras. And so we're like rehearsing and like I'm, I've now seen other directors do the same thing where you're sort of cupping your hands over your eyes to create like what their audience is seeing. And so like now if I turn a little bit, so I have like, like the variation of like, you know, am I, am I looking left or right? What is the audience seeing? And so we do that in like sort of like more like a theater rehearsal. So like we come in, we're going to rehearse the first scene. And then maybe after we rehearse that a number of times, we'll go switch to the second scene. And then we start putting in sometimes for other performances, like the first scene becomes the last scene and the last scene becomes, I mean, it's like once it starts happening, you start to, start to maybe rethink the structure. And again, being open to that. Like uh, for some of our early shows with Riverbed Theater, like <laughs> on this Thursday night we do like our press conference and I'm like, well, I don't know if that worked. And so like the next day we've cut 10 minutes of the show and added like a new scene and like the actors were like, ah. But I think in our rehearsal process, because so much of it is like we're creating work together, I think they're prepared for that. They understand that, you know, it, it's a living process and things change. And so I think that they're willing to embrace that. Obviously, as we're getting closer to, like, for this VR project, as we're getting closer to the actual filming, things start to get really, really focused and really, like, you look down here, and then you look at your hand, and then your head rises, right? And so it becomes sort of, instead of 
like with psychological motivation, like I'm doing this, it's like you let the body work on your mind or your spirit. And so it's like working from the outside in, in a way. Yeah, you mentioned that it's all a process and I've been really getting in more and more into Alfred North Whitehead's process philosophy. And I know Chinese philosophy has like a process relational orientation where it's all relational. And as an American, you're going over to Taiwan and there's a different culture and Mandarin Chinese language and Chinese philosophy to certain degrees. And so I'm wondering if you have any reflections of, you know, as you're coming in and out of these different contexts and seeing those different perspectives, what you see in terms of what's happening in Taiwan and the more, because it seems to be really interesting stuff that's happening there, both in the 360 video and VR scene, but also the kind of insights from the type of work that's coming out of that culture that seems to be a little bit more considerations of these relational or contextual dimensions that feel unique relative to what's happening in the rest of the VR scene. Yeah, I think Taiwan's like a really, and when I first went there, you know, as I mentioned before, I was going there for one year to study Chinese opera and then like one year led to 30 years. And I think what's really exciting is that there's and I was watching, and when I first went there, there I'd seen like this experimental, they call it like a little theater, like Xiao Chang. And so there's like seeing these little experimental theater performances, and like actors kept saying, like, you know, like, what is say? What the Like, who am I? Where am I going? And then I saw like the first one, I was like, huh. And then like, I see like another show the next week, and like, what is say? What And like the same question, like, well, who am I? And obviously, like within, and it sort of sounded like there's like bad existentialism, like or existentialism 101. But like within the context of Taiwan, where you know the Japanese colony, and then with the nationalist government sort of colonizing Taiwan again, and you couldn't speak Taiwanese, and you're sort of all these restrictions until the end of martial law in 1987. So there's like this huge like, well, who are we? And like you know, even like here, you know, at Venice, like are we Taipei or are we Taiwan? Or in sort of like for that, I mean, there's like, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, those large political questions, but I mean, fundamentally, you know, if your identity has been suppressed or marginalized or restricted, these questions of who you are. And so, like, if you look at um, the man who couldn't leave, seeing Chen's, you know, beautiful work, you know, dealing with the white terror. And so, like, these lives that were disruptive, these people's stories who were trying to maintain their Taiwanese identity within, like, a restrictive government. And so there's like these ripples of digging into oneself. And so the level of like self-reflection, this level of trying to find or to create one's identity is really present in a lot of the work. Like so in Taiwan, I, I did some research about like Taiwanese temple festivals. And so like there are these pilgrimages and so you're walking through, you know, like these rural areas. And so a lot of people from Taipei, I mean, it's like, you know, big city. It's like New York or Chicago or whatever. I mean, it's like a big city with like museums, blah, blah, blah. And you start going to these rural areas where they speak the Taiwanese, so like a different, you know, language than Mandarin. And so a lot of the people from Taipei wouldn't speak Taiwanese. And so you're getting into the roots of like of, of the country. And so, like, some theater companies started to incorporate that into their actor training. And so, like, professors started bringing students in. And so there's, like, this, this theater company, Youth Theater, started this plan of tracing back where they're trying to, like, refine Taiwanese culture. And so I think that there's, this, that there's this searching quality. There's this quest. There's this trying to reveal or create or construct. And so there's a dynamic quality that I think runs through a lot of, of work in Taiwan. Yeah, and... As I've looked at different narrative theories and structures, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey comes up quite a lot. And I, one thing I notice is that you know there's a lot of how that's about an individual character that's going out and trying to face these different ordeals and overcome certain things. But it's a lot of action that is energy being put out forth through a specific character. And I feel like that's more of a yang, you know, in Chinese philosophy, a yang expression of energy going outward. And I feel like there's a complementary yin or potentially heroine's archetypal journey. I call it more the yin archetypal journey, which is much more about the disillusionment of the ego and see how you as an individual are connected to the larger whole. That seems to be a part of some of the different stories that may be told in Buddhism or different aspects of Chinese culture. And so as you're studying Chinese opera and, and studying and teaching theater and narrative and structure, like have you noticed like a differentiation for a different type of narrative structures that happen within Taiwanese or Chinese culture that are maybe different than, say, focused on the individual going out and being the hero and more about maybe as you as an individual, how you fit into more of a relational context. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably all those things exist. And I think that what's sort of really exciting about Taiwan is that there's like 
multiple, I mean, obviously everywhere. I mean, multiple truths, multiple ways of looking at that. And so I think that there are some narratives which are like, I'm spider. I mean, like, super, I mean, there's, there are still like the heroes doing this. But I think that there is that, like you're saying, like more of like the internal self-reflection. I think that there's a, a stronger presence of that. And I don't know if it's tied in with education where there is sort of less about for like older generations, less about an assertion of individual creativity or individual personality and sort of following structure and repetition. And so I think that even if you look at Taiwan in the past, like when I went out there 30 years ago and now, I mean, I'd say the students have radically changed, like the level of their like sort of their creative work, putting stuff out there, their self-confidence, their ability to yeah, just sort of not be afraid of, of stepping into the unknown. And I'd say, I'd say there's been like a huge shift with that. So there's slight variation, sort of like not directly answering your question, but like I'd say that this creativity, this search, this inner inward looking, but now we're starting to see it like manifest itself. And like, you know, like if you look at the Taiwanese contemporary art scene, the Taiwanese film scene, the Taiwanese VR scene, the Taiwanese, I mean, like work there that's happening, I mean, it's, it, it holds its own. And I think that, you know, in Taiwan, like with the VR and their presence here, like at Venice, I mean, it's pretty amazing like a country of like 27 million having three works as part of the venice film festival here you know kind of remarkable and like i think two or three years ago they had like six projects as part of that and, you know and, and it's just like taiwan's voice is being heard yeah yeah and curious to hear a little bit about the reactions that you're getting here at venice i know last night i was at one of the opening night parties and i had mentioned that all that remains and the man who could not leave were two of the pieces that both from taiwan that i felt like were real standout pieces in terms of like what's happening with the medium and, and, and pushing the medium forward and I heard from some people that there was a bit of a buzz for people you know talking about these pieces and so I'm curious to hear a little bit about what their reaction's been for as people go through this experience and as they come out of it what they're able to what you're able to see for the, what their reactions are yeah it's, it's great and I think it's something that's really interesting with VR because I mean you're definitely seeing the audience respond in real time and so like in the first sequence some people like they start backing up and backing up, you know, as if they could escape. And by the end, they're, you know, up against the curtain. And they, if they could still keep backing up, they'd still be, you know, and, and again, you don't get any further from the character because it's, that relationship is maintained. But that sense of it's too close or too much, I think some people come out and just sort of like, wow, is sort of, or just, I think it takes time to sort of process and come back. I think what's difficult here is because people have such a tight schedule and they're running to see the next show, or also there's a lot of people around you. It's hard to sort of decompress, but I mean, it just seems there's, you know, something is happening. I think we've already just talked to like a festival next March, and so we just were invited. And so that's sort of a really exciting that we already have like a next stage. And this is the first film in a part of a trilogy. And so we've already shot the second film and we're going to enter post-production. And so it's exciting. I, mean, I think that there's a lot of question marks about where this goes. And to be honest, I was, I was kind of nervous. Like, you know, like how will people respond? Like, will people be willing to like open their hearts and experience this? Or will they just like, well, what does this mean? Or I don't get it. And I think that, that like, I don't get it. I think that in a way it becomes, you know, it's a really easy, it's a one sentence that sort of, you can cop out of everything, right? And so hopefully, I mean, I'd say like 95% of the people seem to be really engaged in processing. One person came out and just seemed sort of, you know, something was obviously happening. It was like, you know, it was too much, it was, it was too much. And again, there's no, no one gets killed. There's no murder. There's no horrific sexual assault. I mean, there's, there's so nothing really violent or aggressive happens, but, but there's a connection. Like that, that you're, you're, you're present. And I think that maybe that's the thing that it's more difficult for audience. It's not to see, I mean, we've seen enough TV shows and movies to someone gets shot and killed. We, we've seen that happen in, in the medium. But we haven't sort of seen ourselves maybe as much. And so maybe the resistance is yeah, opening oneself. I will say in the first scene, there is the pulling off of a dress of the character, which, you know, I feel like if someone's experienced sexual assault there may be some aspects that could be triggering but you never know with whatever someone's experienced that there could be something in there that's triggering in there so that's my reaction though yeah 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 and, and so again and it's yeah it's difficult i mean it's like how do you know who the audience is and what's happening and you know hopefully you know each person takes out and through that there can be you know sort of a, a healthy self-reflexive process 
but yeah, it's it's exciting. I, I showed it to my sister-in-law who had never seen like a VR film before, and we were like in uh, my brother and hers like a uh, living room, and like, she literally backed up like six feet. And then in the first scene, and then the second one she turned, and then in the, the third scene she also backed up like three feet going the other direction. And it's just, it's, you know, that, it's like being in an elevator and someone's standing close to you, and there's a discomfort or an awareness of proximity. And obviously we're not, I mean, the goal is not to like, we will now make you feel uncomfortable. But there is to get close. We did this briefly. We did this one performance at a museum more than this in 2013. And like the final day, like it was for an audience one, each piece I think was about 13 minutes and we looped it. And so there's like a, a 10 minute or 15 minute break between. And like eight of the 10 people that came out after the show were like crying. And it's interesting because again, like Romeo doesn't die or Juliet doesn't die. In the end, there's no plot or narrative or characters. And so the tears weren't for Romeo or Juliet. They were for themselves. And it was part of like this Asian biennial. And so there's amazing paintings and sculptures and all this amazing work. But like, you know, in a museum, we're used to sort of seeing artwork and appreciating and talking about its like structural or composition. But like in a museum, very rarely does someone see a work of art and cry. And again, like crying does not like that proves that it's good. But like something happened. And I think in the same way, like how do we... You know, sometimes I think with VR, with technology or with different mediums, we get so caught up in the medium that we forget about what is the journey. Like we start someplace and where do we end? If we start and end at the same place, <laughs> that's not much of a trip, right? And so how do you, what is the process of going from A to somewhere? And where that is, that's dependent on the audience and how far they go or where that takes them. But that idea of, like, like, like I said, if you begin to start at the same point, then why go? Awesome. And, uh, and finally, what do you think is the ultimate potential for virtual reality and what it might be able to enable? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, I mean, I'm just, it's been amazing being here and seeing the works that have, were curated as part of the film festival, like the VR festival. I mean, it's just like everyone, like radically different aesthetics and experiments. And like, as an artist, it's exciting to see the way other folks are playing with or experimenting with the medium. You know, sort of having worked through the pandemic as a theater <laughs> instructor, it's like, oh shit, now we've got to teach acting and or directing and you're in your apartment or in your family room with your parents. Like, how does this happen? And during the pandemic, it was, in the one hand, like really, really difficult. And the other hand, it was just sort of really revolutionary because the students, like if you were taking an acting class, you also then needed to deal with lighting and costumes and set and props. You also were sort of, you know, sometimes they'd be moving their camera or thinking about well, what's the relationship or where do you place your camera or can it move in the scene? So there are also cinematographers, they're working with composition, how do we frame this? And they were becoming like total artists. And I think that so much of our life in academia, we still have like, I'm an, I'm an actor, I'm in the theater department or I'm in the art department. Theater or art, like those aren't connected. <laughs> or I'm in the music department. And so suddenly we had everybody was sort of like being like total artists. And it was really sort of emancipatory in terms of thinking of like, yeah, I can create, I am creating. And so I think that like with VR, it's a similar thing because, you know, we couldn't go see shows or theaters were closed down. And so you can construct like these VR experiences or digitally mediated experiences, or we use this platform Wirecast. So we had like people in five different cities and we were sort of streaming a live performance and like cutting between like, go to camera one, go to camera three. And so it was like this really kind of fantastic of like, I mean, there's infinite ways to, like I was talked earlier about, to explore performance. We know, we know a play, we got it. Like, what now? And I think what's exciting, like stepping into the VR, like this ecosystem, is that nobody knows for sure. And it's such an exciting place to be that it's not a repetition of what we know, but it's a lot of asking questions. Is there uh, anything else that's left unsaid that you'd like to say to the broader immersive community? Yeah, I'm not sure when you're broadcasting this, but I'd like to just wish you happy birthday yesterday. So I know. <laughs> and actually, it's kind of interesting, and it's kind of weird, and I don't know if you'll edit this out, but it's kind of cool, like for listeners of your podcast. I don't know if you know that Hank's role, and just having met Hank three days ago, and it's kind of cool, like there is an ecosystem. 
And there is sort of your presence in documenting this for the past 11 or 13 years. It's uh, eight years, yeah, that I've been Okay, I was exaggerating here. So eight years. But it, it's sort of how, I mean, to record that, there's this history, there's, and it's a living history. And so I think that you know, it would be really amazing. So if there's a listener out there who wants to transcribe these <laughs> interviews, I mean, it's important documentation. And I think that's exciting is that you've done it for eight years, and if you do it for another eight years, and we sit down again, like, how will this medium have changed? And I think that I went to some of the pitch sessions earlier today, and there's a lot of cool things out there. Like, the things that are you know, in the works are amazing. And I think that it's great to be part of this community. Yeah, I, I get a lot of requests for transcripts, and it's on the goal. I've been waiting for the AI to get good, but AI ends up, you have to sort of correct it, and it ends up taking just as long as if you were to just transcribe it yourself. And so, and it's probably take seventy to $80,000 to sort of properly transcribe everything. So if there are people out there that want to... Yeah, rich listeners, this is your opportunity. You can be on the ground floor of this epic novel. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to have that. But yeah, I really enjoyed your piece. And like I said, it kind of walked out of it with a little bit into this liminal space of an altered state of consciousness. And I really appreciate it. And it reminded me of a lot of those encounters that I've had in immersive theater. And so it was interesting to see the creating of video that you've made, which I'll highly recommend. People eventually get a chance to see this, I hope, and then get a chance to see the making of and listen to this conversation because... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of what you're doing in your process, and I think there's sort of elements of this kind of embodied presence and how to recreate an encounter with this virtual entity. And I think that you've been able to really unpack a lot of really interesting and compelling stuff because a lot of virtual characters, you don't get a lot of the subtle performance aspects of a face. And so there's a lot of this piece that you're working with actors and the performances they give, I think, are really profound. And yeah, it was really striking and moving, and uh, I really appreciate having the chance to be able to sit down and help unpack it all. So thank you. Great. Thank you very much. So that was Craig Quintero. He's director of All That Remains. And uh, if you'd like to hear more conversations about all the different pieces that I've talked about here at Venice Immersive, I recommend going back to episode 1,121. I talk about each of the different 30 pieces in competition. And then 1,144 will be a Venice Immersive panel on the art of reviewing immersive art and entertainment, which is, a, I think, a good discussion that talks about a lot of what I'm trying to do with these oral history and podcast series of looking at immersive art and immersive entertainment. So that's all I have for today. And I just wanted to thank you for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, then please do spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener-supported podcast. And so I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue to bring you this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening. 